Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The killing of George Floyd has shocked the world and ignited a protest movement for change, directed most notably by the progressive Black Lives Matter movement. The feeling of injustice has inspired many, particularly the young, to protest and call for greater change in the way institutions approach minorities. In recent years, many young Muslims have also embraced this movement for change. The Muslim community are the recipients of draconian security policies and marginalization and can empathize with the broader movements for social justice. Added to this, with conservative parties in power in Britain and America and in many European states, the left have sought to develop cooperation by co-opting Muslims into broader political projects. My guest today, Imam Dawood Walid, although acknowledging the importance of activism within the Islamic tradition, argues that our community needs to tread carefully when developing lines of collaboration, lest we are utilised for nefarious political and cultural aims. He argues that activism does not fall out of the purview of the revelation, and if we are to make a change, this has to be rooted in an Islamic notion of justice and using means that accord with the prophetic sunnah. Forging alliances with the progressive left has come at a cost. We have been co-opted into a social programme that disregards our moral values. Furthermore, the left, he argues, are using the Muslim community to pursue their broader electoral aims. Imam Dawood Walid is currently the executive director of the Michigan chapter of CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, and is a member of the Michigan Muslim Community Council Imams Committee. His most recent book titled Towards Sacred Activism is a call for more effective Islamic activism guided by the timeless principles of the Sharia. 
Imam Dawood Walid, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuhu wa maghfiratuhu. It's a pleasure being on. Jazakallah khair. Now, Imam Dawood Walid, I contacted you after listening to a great number of lectures where you discuss your ideas about sacred activism. And it comes through that uh, you have a real uh, concern about Muslims engaging with the Black Lives Matter movement and other progressive left forms of activism. Now, before we discuss your ideas about sacred activism, it is the case that at the moment we are in the midst of one of the most coordinated civil rights protest movements in America after the death of George Floyd. Do you see any positives in this movement that has come in the wake of the horrific murder of uh, George Floyd? أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم. Well, firstly, uh, thank you for having me on uh, to your podcast, and uh, may Allah عز وجل facilitate uh, the opportunity for us to meet in person one day. Maybe I can fly across the pond, as we say over here, and make it to uh, the UK once things. Uh, lift with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, regarding the issue of, of protests as it relates to uh, Black Lives Matter uh, movement, I'm not sure that I would call uh, these protests something that's uh, finely or highly coordinated. I think that a lot of it was just the visceral reactions of people here in America um, regarding the George Floyd uh, murder and people got outraged and took to the streets. So I wouldn't say that uh, that organization had some finely tuned uh, campaign in which um, a group of people with a lot of clout locally just said, okay, this is the time for everyone to go out in the streets. And therefore people went out in the streets because we've had many uh, of these uh, uh, murders that have uh, taken place uh, before as well as after George Floyd. And there's been videos. Uh, I think that this one particular incident was kind of a tipping point for a lot of people uh, emotionally. And also corporate media gave it a lot of attention. So like had corporate media not given it so much attention and showed it, then even I'm even... Um, I'm skeptical about even if it would have been the amount of outrage in people uh, on the streets if corporate media had not given it so much attention to be quite uh, frank. But uh, there is positives of people going out and raising their voices and calling for some sort of uh, change regarding policing in America, which is historically uh, racist. Uh, and there's no doubt about that. And um, it's opened up a broader discussion in America in general, as well as the American Muslim community about the issue of anti-Black racism. So have the protests brought about some uh, cumulative good? I mean, there's no doubt about that in my mind. There has been good that, that has come, uh, come about uh, from the protests. And uh, I would say the amount of white Americans and non-Black Americans in general that have been involved in, pro in these protests uh, to the, the degrees and the numbers is really something also unprecedented uh, in American history where you have non-Black people equaling and sometimes outnumbering Black people 
uh, in these protests in many cities, such as um, in the area that I live in, Detroit. Uh, Detroit is America's blackest major city. It's 80% black, yet at, at many of the street protests, there actually um, was more non-black people than black people at many of the protests. So this is, this is an unprecedented uh, thing uh, in, in regards to uh, the reaction to George Floyd's uh, tragic murder at the hand of the Minneapolis Police Department. I mean, if I'm reading the Black Lives Matter movement right, they argue that racism is deeply ingrained within American institutional structures and the police force reflect a institutional racism in the states. So I suppose my question is, how far can protest movements change that uh, if uh, if these attitudes are uh, long-lasting and, and ingrained uh, within the American psyche? Well, people have been saying this long before Black Lives Matter movement. So I, I want to also crystallize this point that uh, civil rights organizations and grassroots leaders have been organizing around these issues for decades. And the issue of systemic racism and how it's institutionalized in America is a very long and rich discourse that that comes way before anything called a Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Um, Malcolm X was saying this exact same thing over 55 years ago. He wasn't using the exact same language, but this critique has been used by uh, James Baldwin to so many other people who have talked about this. So this is not a new, a not new issue. Um, protests are a, uh, a tool. They're not a goal. They're not a goal just to get people out in the streets. And racism from my perspective, cannot be protested away, nor can it be legislated away. And the reason being is that uh, much of what strengthens the systems of institutional racism in America relates to cultural racism. And cultural racism is informed by skewed thinking. And skewed thinking emanates from diseased hearts. So spiritual maladies can't be legislated away by by law. And hence, we have this even in the Quran, where the Quran is a book that has laws. There's ahkam, and there's rulings in the Quran. These are a small percentage of the Quran. Then an even smaller percentage is punishments linked to hudud, very small amount. The majority of the Quran is is calling to the worship of one God, but also to spiritual purification, which leads people to live ethical lives, right? So anti-Black racism cannot be legislated nor adjudicated away, right? It can't be protested away. Those things can help, but laws, for the most part, deal with symptomatic issues, right? So one of the failings that I see regarding the Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on right now, which is different from the civil rights movement that was led in the in the 60s, is that this movement offers no spiritual solutions and no pathway towards redemption. See, the people who led the civil rights movement in America, these were religious people, right? These people had a a a call towards redemption, and they weren't trying to tear everything down. 
right? And from the Islamic perspective, we have balance between justice and pardoning, right? And there comes a time for the societal good. Yes, we call for justice, we call for justice, but there has to be a way forward for the society to heal that entire groups of people cannot be canceled, right? And that's part of the problem what's going on right now, right? So the Prophet ﷺ, he gave Quraysh a path towards redemption, right? Um, when he came back into Mecca after the idol gods were uh, destroyed, he gave people amnesty and he gave people a makhraj or gave them a way out, right? So, um, but neolistic activism doesn't call for that, right? It's like we have to tear everything down to build up something new, a type of uh, utopia that's being sought or heaven on earth, right? And I'm also worried about in the quest of tearing certain things down, something else is going to be erected. America is the most armed country on earth. America has 350 million people. It's estimated that America has 360 million guns. There's more guns in America than people, right? So what, what, what do we think will reasonably happen when you have a group of people who are already being pushed further and further to the right because of identity politics feel as if they're losing their place in society. Um, and much of that has to do with the issue of changing demographics and white fragility. And then they have another group of people who are saying everything needs to be torn down. And not only that, uh, even your ideas about religion, religion should be torn down because religion is oppressive. Not only that, even your gender, let's tear down your gender, even, even how you identify even that's no good. And let's introduce other things in the schools that, that, that start introducing this as so-called history in elementary schools. This is further polarizes and polarizes people where you have rage facing rage. And I believe that if there's not another type of discourse that's entered into the American society, I could easily see mass violence taking place in America. And, and I'm really concerned about it. And in and, and our president, Donald Trump, um, I think he actually would welcome this. I think he would welcome it. And, and his rhetoric actually is pointing towards this, right? Um, so th this is my concern uh, about trajectory of, of, our, of what's going on right now in, in America. I mean, certainly it seems to me that Donald Trump is uh, playing uh, the, this uh, identity card for for very narrow political purposes. He needs to win the next election there in, in the States. Uh, but I want to unpack something you've you've said there. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned in your in the answer to the first question that corporate America is very much behind uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and they've endowed large amounts of funds. Yes. Uh, to to them, uh, and and you've said, and you also mentioned that uh, the movement has incorporated large numbers of white Americans who've come out on the streets in in solidarity uh, with uh, with Black America, and uh, and and 
is there a, I mean, the liberal argument, yes, you're right in, in suggesting that there is not a spiritual foundation to this movement. But I suppose the argument is that uh, we need to reassert uh, the, the core liberal argument. And, and liberalism believes in equality. Uh, it believes uh, that all human beings have rights. And if you bring uh, those two ideas together, uh, black America at the moment have not yet receive a status that uh, traditional liberal argument would suggest they should receive from, from wider society. And so, yes, there may be a, a, a spiritual foundation that's not there, but, but rather their argument would be we're reasserting the principles of the Constitution, the principles of, of liberal rights, uh, which are currently absent in, uh, in, in America. Well, those rights have never existed in America. So that's the first thing. They've never existed in America since day one. So and, and in regards to Western secular liberalism, there are, there are pluses and minuses, right? So we have this idea of, of equality and supposedly so-called social egalitarianism. But what's being pushed by the so-called progressives, uh, in fact, is a very militant ideology. It's pseudo-pluralism because it's pluralism and, and so-called equality regarding based upon identity politics, uh, based upon very profane sensibilities. So it's pluralism until you disagree with me. Then you end up becoming marginalized and your beliefs become marginalized and there becomes to be hostility. So for instance, yeah, uh, Muslims are treated uh, as a minority group right? Because the prevailing discourse, if we're to have equality, then there has to be an adversary towards what's stopping equality. So the discourse is, is uh, white, straight patriarchy. That's the adversary. So then Muslims fit in very nicely and well as, as a type of quasi-ethnic group social-political group within this framework. So many times it's like, you know, uh, the the Muslims need to stand in solidarity with the Blacks, the Latinos, and LGBTQ because they're all posited as some kind of minority groups, right, within this perceived uh, adversary. I think that the problem with this discourse, I mean, outside of Black and Muslim, the Muslims need to stand with the Blacks. It's a very problematic discourse in the sense that 30% of American Muslims are Black. So that's a type of subtle erasure of Blackness within uh, American Muslims, as well as the history. The first Muslims to, to, to be in this land were, were, were Black people. But beyond that, you have one group of people on the right who dislike Muslims, and they see Muslims as a non-white group that's also a threat to uh, Christian hegemony, right? So that's one group. These people dislike or loathe Muslims. You have another group who's supposed to be for liberalism and pluralism, but in fact, they loathe Islam. They loathe, they loathe the sacred law. They loathe many of our beliefs. So then this causes people that they want to try to remake Islam from within. And then unfortunately, many Muslims have compromised a number of things from what is called al-ma'lum and al-deen bidurura. Things are supposed to be known by necessity in the deen, 
in order to fit in the so-called allyship with people who are to the left. Can, right? can you give so me some, some examples of that, please? Well, I mean, prime example that I would give is that we have a, uh, a Muslim politician that's right here in my state that sent out an email recently, and she's trying to raise money talking about Black trans lives matter. Now, Black people who get brutalized by the police or killed by the police, historically in America to the day, have been primarily Black men who are not gay, right? But even when Black people are killed by the police, it's not because of sexual identity or it's because of Blackness, right? Because Blackness has always been feared and dehumanized in the American context. There's one thing to say that we're for the dignity of all human beings and no one should be victim of hate crime. No one should be bullied. No one should be denied uh, employment in the, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the public sector or housing or able to like get food, clothing and shelter. That's one thing, right? And as Muslims, we should not have any problem with those basic human rights for anyone, whether they're straight or gay or, or claim to be transgender. It's another thing for Muslims in the name of allyship to actually go out and try to propagate that which is forbidden in our deen, uh, or for Muslims to celebrate the forbidden. This falls under the category of al-amru bil-munkar, this is literally enjoining the evil, enjoining forbidden. And that's the problem of where Muslims in America, and from why I gander, I, when I was in the UK, the same phenomenon is in Canada. I go to Canada quite often. We've been pulled into uh, a type of politics that um, is literally taking Muslims away uh, from their deen and is going to reduce us uh, within a couple of generations on this trajectory of uh, will it even be, will people even want to be Muslim, right? Like why even be a Muslim if nothing is sacred, if you don't have anything to hold on to? Because it doesn't pay to be a Muslim in an environment where Islamophobia is rampant. So it's just much easier. Oh, okay, not only can I uh, sacrifice these things or give up these things uh, that are clear in the Quran, maybe this can just say, well, maybe I can just leave the entire thing. Like, why do I even need it? If, if, if we're going on this on this framework of treating Islam as some sort of quasi-ethnic socio-political identity that's not based in, in, in sacred beliefs and sacred values that must be hold on uh, must be held on to. I want to clarify your position with regards to the Black Lives Matter movement. Is the problem, in your mind, the terms of that engagement rather than the engagement itself? I suppose my question is. Uh, have you got to worry about the aims of, say, the Black Lives Matter movement and what it stands for? And even if Muslims participated with a clear awareness of their faith, the engagement in itself would be problematic. Oh, I've been involved in many protests and I've been involved in protests actually in the past in which uh, Black Lives Matter activists were there. I think that, number one, we need to organize ourselves and we need to be very clear in our parameters. And if we're going to go out and we're, and we're going to engage, we have to engage in our terms 
and engage in our ways of protesting and engage in our own language and nomenclature, both in tone as well as in wording, right? So the, the issue is not whether to protest or not to protest. I believe that there is uh, certain times of protest and I've helped organize uh, protests. But I also think it goes back to the point that, uh, and this is more of an American context, but in the United States of America, Muslims who are Black, African-American in particular, have the most sociopolitical capital within the Black community. It's for historical reasons as well as like we live amongst our people and we have family ties, right? So it would be wise for Muslims who aren't Black, instead of jumping over their Black brothers and sisters in Islam to go to Black Lives Matter, it would be wiser for them to consult their own brothers and sisters in Islam who come from the Black experience, who have a history of organizing going back decades and follow our lead, or at least strongly consider what we say instead of jumping over us to go to people who frankly, um, a number of their policy suggestions are good, but a number of their tactics and some of their platform is really irreverent. And, and, and I use that word earlier, uh, nihilistic, right? So um, I think that we shouldn't be so quick to run underneath everyone else's umbrella, right? If, if we truly believe in the ayah of Quran, kuntum that you are the best of people brought out for humankind. Why? Because you enjoin what is good and just, and you forbid what is evil and unjust, and you believe in the oneness of God, then we should see ourselves as leaders. And if we're leaders, then that means we should not be so quick to follow everyone else down the lizard hole in, 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 their, in their methods of protesting or in their words, much less in what they call their intersectional their intersectionality agenda, right? So um, I think some of us has to deal with our perception. I think a lot of it has to deal with our perception of how we see ourselves, um, our um, perhaps our lack of leadership. And, and maybe um, I would even go to say even uh, inferiority complexes that many Muslims have where we don't even see ourselves really as leaders, but following everyone else's agenda. Or we follow the trends, whatever the wind blows and the Muslims are here. Um, I remember that Stop Coney 2011 campaign. Muslims jump on the bandwagon about that. That was, I think, the first major social media or Twitter, like social media thing. Um, without questioning any of the background. Um, and the people of Uganda got zero money from that campaign. Like it, the campaign was a sham, right? But we just, we're so quick to, to, to follow what, what's trendy. We, we don't take the time to sit back and do tefekor. We, we don't contemplate and think things a lot many times, I believe. So in, in your mind, it's not a problem uh, for Muslims to seek their rights, even if that, those rights are sought from a, a system of disbelief. Uh, so the American system, for example, and, and even if those, those rights are sought with other non-Muslims uh, who may share 
your ultimate aims, right? So that that is not a problem, but rather the terms of engagement and how we view Islam, and I suppose how we view justice is really uh, is really the foundational principles by which we should engage. Right. Well, see, the the rights that we strive for are irrespective of any government, be it in a Muslim majority country or non-Muslim majority country. It has to do with God-given rights. So we strive to ensure our God-given rights, be it in a secular society or in a so-called Muslim society. I don't, personally, I don't believe there is an Islamic government on on earth right now, right? Um, But it would hold true to wherever wherever we're at. So we work with inside the system. Uh, I don't believe in... Uh, sitting back and being idle or not engaging the broader society because we as Muslims were supposed to try to to better the society and make it a better place than which we found it when we were born into it or migrated to it, right? So uh, my I don't have an issue with us striving for our rights within the American uh, constitutional system, even though I believe that it was it was designed from day one to work against black people, right? I, I, it wasn't designed for us, right? It simply wasn't. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, who helped write the Declaration of Independence, wrote in the in the Constitution that black people constitute three fifths of a human being, right? So, I mean, for for electoral college or population purposes, right? But really, many of these people didn't see us as a human being at all. They just considered us three-fifths just for their political purposes. So um, nonetheless, we have to do the best what we could do um, while we're here. And, 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 you know, and, and this is something else, too, that I have to say, is that there's no such thing as perfect justice in the dunya. Perfect justice is in akhirah. The heavenly life where there's no struggle, that's that's akhirah for those who get Jannah. This world is designed to be Dal Ibtila, the, the, the home of tests and where calamity set, but there's no such thing as perfect justice. We strive for perfect, we strive for justice, but there's never there's never a, a, a time uh in, in our lifetime uh where there's been perfect justice anywhere. And and we're not gonna see perfect justice. Right. Um, we, we strive. We, we strive towards that objective. Right. And um, if I, I think if we understand that, that will help us in not falling into despair or getting overly disappointed when we see things that we think don't go our way or we see uh, injustice in the world. Well, uh, this is by design of Allah as a There's a there's a, a a a temporal struggle as long as there's a dunya where there's going to be good, challenging injustice, right? And there's always going to be shayateen or devils amongst human beings. And those people are going to seek to uh, split people uh, based upon uh, religion and ethnicity and race to make people fight against one another. And this is the job of, of, of a shaitan. And he said so, and Allah gave him reprieve uh, uh, and allow him to whisper and suggest things, and Shaitan has uh, shayateen. He has devils amongst jinn and men that work for him. So th- this is just a reality of, of, of living in the dunya. 
So your your big worry really with the progressive left and their form of activism is that it's devoid of uh, uh, of a spiritual foundation uh, as well as it harms the ultimate iman of those who engage with them because uh, those who engage with those movements are asked to subscribe to uh, a number of moral positions which uh, ultimately they uh, would be in disagreement with with Islam. Now, why why is it taken so long for Muslim scholars like yourself to recognize this problem? And I, I've noticed for, for some time the Muslims have aligned themselves with the left. Uh, we see that in the UK with the left of the Labour Party, and of course you see that in America. Uh, in fact, I've seen too many scholars um, easily endorsing the causes of the left and, and encouraging Muslims to participate uh, in these movements, if not uh, indirectly through fundraising, then directly by sending their children to these protests. Well, others have. I think they've been a little more quiet and spoken in their local communities. But, you know, I think a lot of it has been pushed by fear. So to be clear, I think there is a time and place to be in coalition with people on the left on certain issues. So I'm, I'm not saying there should be total disengagement. What I'm saying is that we should not, I don't think, I think it's a mistake for us to call ourselves progressive Muslims or to treat the progressive platform and the left as if they're our awliya, as if they like are our unconditional allies, right? Because clearly they, they aren't. Nor do I think that everyone on the right should be wholesale canceled. There's a lot of racism and a lot of problematic uh, things on the right, right? But there are also everyone on the right is not beyond redemption, right? So our dean itself calls ourselves to take the middle ground. We shouldn't be to the far right nor the far left. The Quran says we're supposed to be the people of the middle. And and uh, I, I don't I don't uh, see myself as being a uh, a progressive or a so called conservative. But going back to to this fear after nine eleven in America. The Republican Party came out very anti-Muslim, very xenophobic. So after the invasion of, of Afghanistan, then became the invasion of Iraq. And there were so many anti-Muslim things that were coming from the right, from their clergy to politicians, uh, hearings in Congress, Representative Peter King, like a modern day witch hunt, like what Joseph McCarthy did back in the 50s in America. So the left said, well, you know, we're the party of civil rights, we're the party of inclusion. And then Muslims found more comfort with the left due to the right's overt anti-Muslim statements, even though politicians on the left agreed with and signed on to the immoral invasion of Iraq. Even though people on the left signed and agreed with the Patriot Act that targeted Muslim community for surveillance and unjust prosecutions and the undoing of the FISA court that gave the National Security Agency the right to spy on every Muslim that makes calls overseas or sends emails. And, and, and drone warfare, Obama bombed and killed more Muslim civilians with drones than Bush. But see, he invited us to 
the White House for iftar and gave us hummus and biryani. So we so we like Obama, right? And we and we like the the left, you know, because you know they say Ramadan Mubarak and or they tell us, you know, uh, you know, have a happy uh, Nowruz and these sorts of things and give us the hummus and baklava. So you know, those are our friends, <laughs> right? So I but I I think a lot of this was just due to a, a reaction based upon political expediency from some, but many I think is based upon fear to be quite frank and wanting to, to fit in. And, and I have to say that um, this came even more so, not limited to, but this came even more so from the immigrants and the Chova immigrants who, who came here from South Asia and from the Arab world more so who were the leaders of this, not, not African-Americans. Um, and, and many African-Americans uh, to this day don't even see the utility of getting involved too much in national politics at all. They focus more so on local politics, like who's the mayor or on the school board or city council, because in our lives in meaningful ways, we don't see that much difference between the left or the right when it comes to policies. Right. So um, whereas other people, uh, you know, who who believe in the press progressive platform and wrote them large checks. And, you know, e even if those politicians, including Muslims, will openly um, uh, disrespect Islam, but they're Muslims. But they openly disrespect uh, 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 Islam. Um, and I'm not talking about issues of ikhtilaf, you know, are, are the differences amongst the Muslims is a mercy, but there are certain things regarding uh, Islamic morality that all the Muslims agreed upon, right? And that's where, and that's the red line. It's like the, the, uh, the Hanbalis and the Asharis and the Maturidis and the, the Mu'tazilis and, and, and the Shia and the Ibadis and the Zaydis, like there's certain things everyone always agreed upon, right? Going back for 1400 years. And now just to throw that out the window or to disrespect that in the name of politics, where there's certain issues that Muslims never disagreed upon, whether they were the majority or in the minority, like in West Africa, in Ghana, or in, in Europe, or in India under the time of the Mughals, whatever, whether Muslims were ruling or not ruling, right? Um, th that's the disappointing part that unfortunately I've seen uh, some uh, more so activists, but even some imams unfortunately have taken uh, that route and, you know, may, may Allah, uh, May Allah guide, uh, guide us all, and you know we we all make mistakes. And uh, but I think now's the time for us to recenter, because the heat has been taken off of Muslims right now. Like Muslims are like we Muslims in America have been under intense pressure for almost the last twenty years. This is the first time in two thousand twenty where Muslims have not been the political whipping board in the American discourse. It's like the first time. Actually, Trump has given us a little bit of space in the sense because he's so outrageous. But even with all these police killings and COVID-19, it's like 
Muslims aren't like being beaten up in the media or like in Congress now, right? We have some room to breathe where we can rethink some of our positions. So like, despite these bad things going on in America, Allah has given a type of fat, a type of opening and, and rahmah to the Muslims that we have the opportunity to rethink some things now. And so I, I, I encourage those who listen to this, not just in America, but in Canada or the UK, whoever's listening, that now's the time for us to start rethinking some of our, our socio-political positions and how we align with certain movements. I think that, that Almighty God has given us a, an opportunity and we should take advantage of it. Now, that takes us to uh, what you call sacred activism. Yes. Um, you've written a, a book on the subject, and I know you've given many lectures on the, um, on the subject in, in recent days and weeks. Um, what exactly do you mean that there is a prophetic path to change? Well, I think sacred activism would be the opposite of profane activism or nihilistic activism. So sacred activism um, is that the activism has certain parameters or certain boundaries, like the word harma means sacred in Arabic and relates to the word haram. So haram is a certain precinct where there's a heightened consciousness about what should be done and what shouldn't be done and how it should be done and how it should not be done. And this sacredness does not come from feelings. It does not come from the winds of emotions. It doesn't come by trends. It doesn't come by um, public opinion polls through democracy. That which is sacred come the divine. It is based upon transcendent values and principles. So that is what is sacred, and that should what guide our activism. Allah is the ultimate goal. He's our ultimate desire. The objectives should fit into that which we can deduce as pleasing to Almighty God through the parameters that he set. And then the means that we use should also be based in sacred principles and, and what we call akhlaqiyat or Islamic ethics, which is also, and also is to our adab, our comportment, our etiquettes, and how we go about uh, the goal of the objective. So um, that's what I mean by sacred activism. And, and, and I, I want to highlight that because just as the, the ends are very important and the parameters that we use or the litmus test that we use for what we advocate for or against should be based in the sacred but the means are equally as important, right? We are a people of substance and form. And we aren't a people that say the ends justify the means. And we cannot use legitimate grievances, or let me, let me reword that. We cannot use illegitimate means to adjust legitimate grievances. There are legitimate grievances, but they have to be addressed in legitimate means. And I've and we've said this over the years in relates to violent extremism, right? So for for instance, Palestinians are under illegal occupation, they have been, and Palestinian people are suffering and they've been suffering, right? That's the legitimate, they have a very legitimate struggle, legitimate grievance. But because they have a legitimate grievance, could I could I then say that it's justified for a Palestinian to have a bomb? to go and blow up 
uh, a fruit market and where there's civilians, where there's women and children. Can I say that's no, that's that's they have a legitimate grievance, but that's a, that's a legitimate means to address a legitimate grievance, right? So um, when I'm talking about sacred activism, that's kind of like the direction that um, I went in in my book. So the rights are defined by Islam. Uh, the notion of justice is defined by Islam. The ends are defined by Islam, but also Islam uh, gives you parameters by which you incorporate your means. And so you can't go beyond those those parameters when you when you seek your ultimate uh, your rights. Um, now, uh, and that includes, but that and that also includes in a secular system, and it also doesn't negate the legitimacy of secular laws. So I have to be very clear about that, right? So because everything isn't shari, but we have certain objectives based upon sacred parameters, right? Which can be based in the secular that are still good and praiseworthy. So I just want to be clear, when I say sacred, that doesn't mean that everything within secular law is is bad. But it is to say that I don't believe that we should be propagating or promoting anything uh, from, uh, from the secular that uh, goes against the sacred. So can, so can Islamic notions of justice overlap with secular versions? You know, for example, we believe that racism is an injustice, right? And um, so do secular movements and, and liberal movements believe that racism is, is an injustice. So on yeah. can we then unite on such a platform with others uh, on eradicating uh, racism? I accept the point that eradicating racism cannot just be done cannot just be through through legal processes it has to be something a bit more a bit more deeper and it has to it has to sink into the populace right and and the way of thinking but if for example you know a, a muslim movement sought to do that can they seek allies amongst non-muslims yeah we could be in coalition with people uh that mm. are not muslims for a a noble objective is no doubt about it as long as we are very clear on our parameters. And as long as we aren't compelled to promote that, which is forbidden to us in the process. Um, and the, the, the evidence for this relates to the virtuous treaty. It's called Hawful Fudul that the Prophet witnessed in the era of ignorance where he saw that there was a foreigner that had been um, cheated. He was from Yemen. And the man cried out and said he was wrong. He was Mazloom. And the people gathered in the house of a man by the name of Abdullah ibn Jad'an. And they, um, they came up with this agreement of this virtuous compact that no one would be cheated in the business deal and people's rights would be protected of the of the trader, by trader the barterer, the one who's coming in. And the the prophet والسلام, was asked about this, and he said that this treaty was more beloved to him than the than the finest red she camels. And then he said, if I were called to this in Islam, I would accept. Now those people who made that treaty, they weren't Muslims. They came from a polytheist, a polytheistic society, right? So he, 
the Prophet السلام, was telling us that if the end is noble and it conforms with our transcendent values, that we can enter into coalition to protect the rights of the people for the common good, right? But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we propagate their beliefs in other things. It's for that, hmm. it's for that, um, it's for that goal or for that cause. And, uh, and, and a lot of work that we've done here um, traditionally as Muslims in the African-American community, and even myself, we've, we've done these things in coalition on certain issues with African-American Christians, white American Christians, even some um, white American mm-hmm. Jewish people. You know, we've been involved in some of these and some of these issues uh, historically over over time. Now, I'm getting from what you're describing here uh, when you discuss sacred activism that there are limits to how much you really can achieve uh, in within a paradigm of of disbelief or within a pal- paradigm of a, a secular system. So. Although Islam gives us a permission uh, from the Hukum Shari to seek our rights, even when those rights uh, are from a, a system which uh, which fundamentally we may have a problem with, we we go into such an endeavor recognizing that truly only rights can come and can flourish when uh, the justice springs from a an Islamic foundation. Uh, now you know. Uh, I, I would say one thing before you continue. It's not a limitation on what we can achieve. It's a limitation on the level of our engagement with other people. But what we can achieve, I actually think we can achieve more long-term by sticking to our principles. So I, I would reframe it. I don't think it's a limitation on what we can achieve. I don't believe in us limiting ourselves because I think that if we called the American people to a new vision many of them may follow us in that different societal vision of justice. Some of them may even become Muslims, God forbid. Like we've even, we've even given up Dawah. We're so quick seeking acceptance of other people. We've even forgot to invite people to Islam for God's sake. But I, I think that people in the American society in particular, they've seen that what all the institutions that they valued have failed them. And that's part of the reason why Trump got elected, by the way. And it's part of the reason why some people have gone to the the far left. Um, The churches have failed them. The entertainment industry has failed them. The media has failed them. Their governmental institutions have all failed them. So right now, (laughs) people are looking for a different way. Like people don't know where the where to go. People are stumbling. Even in the Muslim community, many people are following certain trends. Why? Because they haven't been given an alternative. So I think that instead of saying that we try to limit what we could achieve or to box ourselves in a type of like paralysis, it goes back to, can we as Muslims do a type of internal struggle or ijtihad where we come up with a program and formulate a different framework of what justice looks like in America, of what it means to be a just society, environmental justice, um, economic justice, uh, racial justice, um, educational reform, 
can we rise to the challenge to offer the American people something different outside of the left and right paradigms? I believe that many Americans would gravitate towards it. Some of them will even accept this land, I believe, but many of them would gravitate to it because right now the American society is a hot mess and people are stumbling around and, wa and wandering around the country as, almost as if they're drunk, right? They don't know where to go. And that's because they haven't been given an alternative. What, okay, so that's really, really fascinating what you say there about how Muslims need to develop alternative uh, views about these very uh, important issues that are facing uh, Western societies and and almost like deploy it as part of our activism, a a sacred activism in, in your words, you know, a Muslim activism, which which comes from a uniquely Islamic position. But ha is that work being done? I mean, um, uh, if I was a, you know, uh, a young person uh, who was uh, who was charged up by, you know, the, um, uh, the killing of uh, George Floyd, um, you know, and I, I went to my local mosque or, or visited the Muslims in my local community. Could I find this uh, this uh, emergent activism that you talk of uh, in in our communities? Because it it does seem to me that for many young people, it's just about it's just about who's doing something. And at at the moment, the left are organized and the left are coordinated. No, I I agree with you, and that's why I'm saying that we have to get out of the reactive mode and see ourselves as leaders. You know, I think it actually, it's, it's, it's one of the shortcomings of Muslims in America, at least. I don't know about the UK. We don't have the institution set up of endowments and we don't have a single real Islamic think tank here in America. Like, so like this takes... Mm funding, it takes organization, both intellectually, as well as on the grassroots level of organizing, of trying to bring something together. So like part of what I'm doing right now, just to be frank, I wrote this book as a first attempt to try to give some general framework, but I want people, and I wrote this in my book, to take what I wrote and to critique it and to improve upon it. I just simply see myself as playing some seeds. I may never live long enough to see the fruits of what I'm talking about, but I believe that if myself, along with some other people, begin to amplify this message, that these seeds that are being thrown, that some of them are going to germinate and something that's going to grow. So do, do I expect um, Muslims not to run into the hands of the far left just because I'm saying something right now, I wrote a book, of course, I don't believe that that's going to uh, that, that's that's going to stop many people. Uh, even though in my city, I'm involved with people, and we actually do organizing here in my city, right? But do I think this fits for seven million Muslims in America? No, I don't think so. Right now, that's unrealistic, right? Because um, there, there's there's only a, a few people like myself, but this uh, who are talking this way at the same time. Um, without divulging too much, there's a lot of secret meetings going on. There's a lot of people, men and women. We've been involved in weekly calls right now. There is some work going on right now to establish a type of Islamic intelligentsia to put forth this agenda that I'm talking about right now. There's, there's work going on right now. It just can't be seen at this particular time. And, 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 there's, and there are 
there are scholars and there are activists who don't like the way things are going right now, who are sincere and putting forth a lot of effort behind the scenes. See, because sometimes we, we make the miscalculation that if we don't see something manifest in front of our eyes right now, it's not happening. But um, these things uh, take, take uh, human resources, intellectual resources, we're not we're not getting funded for these things, but you know, inshallah, there's there's with, with the fuddle of Allah, you know, that something can be developed uh, over time. You know, Malcolm X died a poor man, and look what type of global impact that he had. He literally, uh, he literally, um, when he flew to Detroit and gave his last public speech before the Autobahn Theater, he literally only had one suit to his name. He literally had nothing. Dr. Betty Shabazz, uh, um, when she took care of the daughters, she had nothing. Right? She had nothing. So, but sometimes you don't need much material and you can make big impact. So Allah knows best. Maybe the next Malcolm X is in high school right now or listening to this talk. Inshallah. Allah knows best. We don't know. Alhamdulillah, inshallah. I hope I pray that is that is the case. And so, uh, you you've mentioned that there is some work taking place. I know it's in its very it's in its infancy, but there's some work taking place to develop a Muslim platform, an Islamic platform for activism. Um, I heard uh, one of your lectures where you where you suggested that uh, Muslims before they engage in in social activism. Uh, they need to uh, employ a study of Islam. And, and you reference, for example, in, in, in that talk, the study of Usul al-Fiqh. Uh, and I found that quite no. quite interesting. Why Usul al-Fiqh from all of the Islamic disciplines? Why did you focus on just on the study of Usul as a, as a prerequisite to activism? Uh, usul Deen and learning Aqidah is also very important, but Usul al-Fiqh, gives us a framework of how to approach knowledge. So we need an epistemology, like we need a, a reference point of how to look at and judge truth and how we prioritize issues. And Usul al-Fiqh helps give us that, for instance, for those things that are life and death situations called ad dururiyat and then you have al-hajiyat, which those things are difficulties or needs but don't reach the level of adoriyat. And you have tasiniyat are those things that help embellish and beautify the life, but don't fit, um, but fit below those other two categories. So it gives us a framework of how to look at truth, but also prioritizing issues. Because right now, um, I don't think that in much of our political uh, activism, even like who we vote for, and I've suggested this to some other uh, people uh, in, in private meetings, that I, when I ask people, say, so, well, what, what are the issues of the community? And first of all, normally it's a group of people who have more resources, who are somewhere not making sure with different activists or different thinkers within the community. It's normally one or two particular ethnic groups from a particular social political privilege or a social economic privilege is not the poorest people is not is not the new Bangladeshi immigrant who's being asked about what's important to them or the or the person who's the uh, children child of a Somali refugee 
right? Now, those aren't the people that 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 are being uh, considered or asked for the most part, right? Um, so you know what gives us a framework of looking at things because if we don't have our own epistemology, then we'll take other people's epistemology or other people's frames of reference of how to digest knowledge and look at truth. There's value in studying uh, other philosophies. Don't get me wrong. And I believe that we should know those, but we need to have a type of an epistemological basis, right? Before we engage those different uh, theories of change or those different uh, philosophies, uh, because if we're not careful, uh, we can engage those things and it will take us into very like uh, profane um, ideas and take us away from the, from the secret. Recently, uh, you've, uh, uh, you've subtly, I, I suppose, criticized uh, some uh, scholars for having too close a relationship with government and with rulers. And uh, you made reference to yeah. uh, the Muslim countries, but also within the Western context. Um, and and I suppose the argument is that the system will want to co-opt religious figures into into association with uh, with their um, uh, with their policies and their program. Um, why why have you uh, why have you focused particularly on 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 scholarship and and the, the relationship between scholars and and these rulers? Well, because the Prophet said, the scholars are the heirs of the prophets, and the scholars are or, or the scholars are the inheritors of the prophets. So we don't believe in clergy, right? We don't have a clergy hierarchy like like the Christians do, or Catholics yeah. in particular. But scholars are supposed to be the vanguards of the tradition. And if the scholars are modeling behavior of being too cozy or doing the bidding of 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 governments especially when they're oppressors then this actually can give religious justification to the awam or to those amongst the generality who are non-scholars right so i think it's more dangerous even when scholars are in, in, engaged in this and also the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he he warned he warned about being at the gates or the doors of the political authorities because he said that fitten, that trials and tests would come along with it, right? So uh, should scholars um, give advice to uh, governmental leaders? Yeah, at times. Yeah, sure they should, right? Um, be it in a Muslim-majority country or a non-Muslim-majority country. There's a difference between giving nasiha or even um, challenging them on unjust policies and actually being seen as a client of the actual government, of actually getting paid by the government or actually getting grant money from the government. Then that compromises the, the position of, of, of the scholars. And we have a saying in America, I don't know about the UK, but they're saying that 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 that, that uh, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Hmm. I don't know if you have that saying there, but yes, we you do. You don't yeah. bite the hand that feeds you. And this is why the early scholars of Islam were very cautious about this, uh, most of them. And even some of them that did take official positions uh, were very explicit in, in warning 
the rulers and putting distance from themselves. So Abu Hanifa, Rahmatullahi, was thrown in prison by Abu Jafar al-Mansur, the, the, the Khalifa. Yes. He was he would he died in prison. Some reports say that he was martyred in prison, right? He died in prison. Imam Malik was beaten. He was beaten. He 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 refused to take a position for the government and to make his fiqh be basically the fiqh of the state. Imam Shafi'i was arrested and dragged from Yemen to Iraq in chains in front of Harun al-Rashid. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal was put in prison by al-Mahmoun and, and he suffered what's called the Mihna, the Inquisition. Even when Abu Yusuf was a judge, he still openly warned the Khalifa, right? So um, these people, uh, we say that we follow these madhahib and we follow these scholars, um, but do we do we really follow them in practice or just follow them in Messiah, right? Because this was the position of those scholars. So those scholars that claim to follow that madhahib, um, besides following the Messiah and following the rulings of the madhahib, um, would be best served to reflect and look at how those imams dealt with state authority. In fact, not only were they not cozy with state authority, not only did not get paid by state authority, because they took positions against state authority, they did it at the risk of imprisonment in their own lives. That's the way of Abu Hanifa and Malik and Shafi'i and Ahmed bin Hanbal, right? Or Zaid ibn Ali, right? Uh, um, who the Zaidi school of thought is named after. This, this was their position. I mean, it, maybe there's a connection between uh, the discussion with the, the point about scholars as well as the discussion we had about how Muslims have been co-opted into, uh, into progressive politics. And, and that is that we live in an era where there, there seems to be a palpable, a very clear uh, agenda to, uh, to reform Islam, to change uh, the fundamentals of, of Islam. And, um, and, and some unsavory people have been co-opted into this project that we know of, uh, but, but even some Muslims who have sleepwalked into, into embracing aspects of this project without recognizing uh, the problem, uh, but, but in their endeavor to try to gain some rights for the Muslim community. You know, you, you, you spoke of um, uh, CVE projects, for example. You know, they, they've ended up, for funding, for other matters, they've ended up being co-opted into his project. So, um, and, and this, uh, you know, uh, this um, uh, reforming agenda isn't, isn't just um, uh, focused on Western Muslims. It's focused on Muslims around the world, right? And, and uh, everyone, you know, feels the pressure from, uh, from uh, state organizations and, and non-governmental organizations that, that, that attempt to water down and, and seek compromise and, and, uh, and uh, curtail the Islamic notions of justice and Islamic notions of halal and haram. In this context, how do we as Muslims resist this challenge that we face? Well, one of the things that the scholars have to be clear and the du'at have to be clear that, yes, we do have a mandate to call for justice in our societies and to actually warn 
those scholars who are being too close with governments to actually warn them. And if need be, there needs to be some uh, public correction, of course, with EDEB. And I think this is something that we've lost that in the old days, scholars of old would disagree with themselves, would disagree with each other. They would do it publicly even, but it would be done with EDEB. It would be done with comportment without calling people names or canceling people. I just wrote an article recently for Safina Society where I mentioned where El Laith Ibn Saad disagreed publicly with Imam Malik, but it was in a very brotherly uh, tone. And the reason why I say this is because if the scholars in Du'at don't hold other scholars accountable for this, this makes the youth and the younger people say, see, um, the traditional route doesn't does is not concerned about justice or in fact these traditional scholars are co-opted by the very regimes and governments that are causing injustice amongst the people and it will cause them to have negative feelings and even reject the tradition because they see scholars who are not embodying the tradition properly right and and um and i would even go as far as to say that um it's not just with the so-called Salafi movement. It's even more now with, with people who claim to wear the cloak of Tasawwuf. And I'm, and I'm saying this as someone who, who, who believes in, 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 in Tasawwuf. And, and so I'm not saying this as someone who is, a, is, is, an, out, is an outsider, but um, Tasawwuf has been made something as well. You just stay in your home and, and, and be patient and, uh, you know, be apolitical. But then some of these same scholars are close with very um, problematic uh, uh, governmental um, uh, institutions or actual leaders, right? And um, that's not the way of, like, real tasawwuf, like uh, Abdul Salam ibn Mashish, Sidi Abdul Salam ibn Mashish, uh, he, was, he was murdered, he was killed in Morocco, right? Um, he held uh, unpopular views. Um, uh, Abu Hassan Neshadali, who was his chief student, um, you know, he did dhikr in the Zawiyah, but when the Crusaders came, he left his Zawiyah and picked up his sword. Like, these weren't like pussycats, like how many times, like the, or, or Uthman bin Fudi, also known as Uthman bin Fodio, uh, of, of the, uh, the Sokoto, Khilafa, uh, 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 right? He was he was Qadri. Uh, he he wasn't a guy who just was like, um, you know, I you see injustice, so you see zoom, and you know, you just sit back and just do some dhikr and, and stick to your word. And you know, if there's some corrupt chiefs, you just be cozy with the corrupt chiefs. That wasn't the man, Uthman bin Fudi or Sheikh Ahmadu Bamba. Uh, he he didn't uh, seek to be cozy with the French colonialist. Um, so, you know, this is, this is pseudo-Sufism. Actually, some of us call it, they, they, we call this uh, uh, goofy Sufis, right? Goofy Sufis. This, this, this isn't, it had nothing to do with the way of, um, with, with the way of, of Al-Hussein ibn Ali or, or, or Ali al-Rida or, um, or uh, Abu Hassan al-Shadali. This has nothing to do with, 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 with that. With all that you've said about the state of Muslim activism and uh, the state of scholarship, 
um, Sheikh Daoud Walid, are you uh, are you hopeful about the future of of the Muslim Ummah here in the West? I am optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic. So we we should be optimistic uh, that uh, about the future. And Allah Azza wa Jal promised in two places in the Quran that Al Islam is going to manifest itself and it's going to make itself seem to be the truth with the people. Uh, the question is whether we will be amongst that group or whether Allah will replace us with the people that love him more. Okay, so uh, the question or my statement really is, is not necessarily about the state of Islam and will Islam eventually take root and flourish in the West. It's more so about whether we as Muslims and our, prodi and our prodigy, will we be actually amongst those people? Will, will, will our offspring even be Muslims two generations from now, or they, will they be replaced with converts who actually are going to hold on to this tradition and live Islam authentically in their American identity or in their British identity without having to apologize about being Muslim or apologize about being acculturated as a true American or a true Brit, right? I think sometimes we, we, we uh, struggle with this, that in order to be a true American, we have to relinquish some of our Islamic values. Or in order to be a true Brit, you have to give up some of that stuff because that's back home stuff, right? Uh, so I think that's the challenge going forward. But I'm, I, I, I believe that uh, Allah Azawajal is going to manifest uh, his truth. And he, uh, and he can use whoever he pleases. And it may not be me or you <laughs> or any of our children. And I, and I have no doubt about that. Imam Dawood Walid. Jazakallah khair. That was a really interesting discussion. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you and keep you strong and uh, enable us to learn from uh, your wisdom that you imparted to us today. Uh, Jazakallah khair, inshallah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.